to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Throughout the world, we've seen tobacco sponsorship and alcohol sponsorship banned or curbed in most markets. And right now, the sponsorship industry is watching Britain after a House of Lords Select Committee on Gambling recommended that not only should gambling shirt sponsorship be banned by 2023, but there should also be no gambling advertising in or near any sports grounds or sports venues. Now, the review is driven by concern at the number of problem gamblers, which is estimated at 430,000 in Britain, and which has seen the losses of punters rocket to £14.4 billion per year in 2019. That's almost $20 billion US dollars. Of course, the pervasiveness of betting in sport, and football in particular, is there for all to see and certainly a driving factor. As I said... We've seen tobacco sponsorship and alcohol sponsorship banned or curbed in most markets around the world, so it seems surprising that gambling has avoided the spotlight for so long. It may, in some part, be due to the rapid rise of online gambling, which has developed at a breakneck speed. However, interestingly... The opposite is happening in the US with betting sponsorships being signed with regularity. Somebody right in the middle of it all is Joel Seymour Hyde, MD at Octagon UK, who not only boasts Paddy Power as a client, but who has also served as a director on the European Sponsorship Association board. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 95 brought to you by Core Software. Thanks for joining us wherever you are in the world and whatever your role is in the sponsorship industry, it is great to have you with us for what promises to be a fascinating chat, and I hope you're doing well. Shout-out time, and the first one goes out to Mikkel Thomas, who is an Olympic Paralympic Business Development Associate at Visa, who connected on LinkedIn and wrote, thanks for connecting, love the podcast and all the global insights gained. As an Olympic athlete transitioning into the business side of sport, the podcast has been a great resource, and I get to learn from global leaders innovating in the way we share the power and beauty of sport. Thanks for connecting, Mikkel, and a little side note that I think you are the first Olympic athlete to reach out and say, Hi. And listeners, Mikel is a Trinidad and Tobago hurdler, having competed in the 110 metre hurdles at the 2008, 2012, and 2016 Summer Olympics. So thanks for reaching out, Mikel, and I'm glad you find the show helpful in your transition. The next one goes out to Akinola Fashola. I hope I pronounced that correctly, who is the partnerships manager at West Ham United FC, who also connected on LinkedIn and wrote, I recently discovered the podcast and have enjoyed listening back to some of the previous episodes it is really well produced and shares some helpful insights very kind that's great Akinola and good luck to West Ham for the rest of the season no doubt this topic for this podcast with Joel is of great interest to you noting that West Ham has Betway as their front of shirt sponsor this season listeners if you'd like a shout out yourself just like Mikel and Akinola then I'd love to give you one as well I really do love hearing from you the listeners so please be sure to connect on LinkedIn and say hi and I will make that shout out happen for you. It's now time to welcome Jordan Rutner, Research Marketing Manager at Core Software, who has written a fascinating blog recently on visualising sponsorship assets across collegiate programs. Here's Jordan. Welcome to the show, Jordan. You are joining the show to talk about your latest blog, which looks at visualising sponsorship assets across collegiate programs. And I must say, I love the creativity and the fun of this approach. But just a quick note for our listeners, this is a chat that has some strong visual elements. It relies very heavily on visual elements. And while Jordan and I will do our best to verbalise it for you and create a mental picture, please be sure to head along to the blog in the resources section at Core Software com to get the full picture. So Jordan, where did this cool idea come from? And explain to the listeners what it looks like. This idea was directly inspired from the March Madness tournament that the NCAA hosts for men's and women's college sports here in the United States, specifically with basketball, of course. And what we really wanted to look at is the behind the scenes and the types of sponsorship assets and even the types of companies that are getting involved with collegiate sports really around the country. And this event just felt like such a good culmination of what the entire year was building up to for collegiate sports. This March Madness tournament just ended this week on the 5th and it was a huge event, uh, very monumental for the sport as 
it did not take place last year due to COVID-19. But we wanted to try to explore the most creative way possible to visualize the types of sponsorship assets that are involved across all collegiate sports, not just basketball. And so to begin, you started out by picking 32 sponsorship products that are included in the highest number of deals? That's correct, yes. We uh, looked through all the different sponsorship products that are directly associated with collegiate rights holders, and these different types of products can be radio assets, different types of entitlements, like a presenting sponsor during a commercial break or an official company of some sort as well. And then, of course, uh, the different types of signage that's going to be around the stadium or even the LED banners that are visual throughout the entire broadcast and the streaming component. Now, Jordan, to help organize all of this, you arrange the sponsorship products by which category they are mapped to and you put it all in a table. Now, before we talk about what that table looks like, where does the data come from that you've used? Core has been able to drive insights out of the internal data that we really do have available to us. And we're very fortunate to uh, be able to look over this type of information. As I said, to help organize all of this, you arrange sponsorship products by which category they are mapped to, and you put it all in a table. What do the results look like? Talk us through it. For the most part, the results were fairly straightforward, and there were only a couple surprises, but it was really interesting to see how many different types of assets were almost bundled together in these different types of sponsorship deals. A sponsorship deal is not just going to have a very straightforward you know, one deal, you get one set of assets and a certain number of them. It, there could be an entire package that's curated for each brand that wants to get involved. And these different types of assets can overlap each other to really give the brands the proper exposure that they're looking for based on the audience, of course. And so from there, you divided the assets up into four regions and you had them sort of compete head to head. And the visual on the blog looks just like a tournament knockout progression tree. How did that all play out when you ran it through? Yeah, the bracket style really was inspired by what the actual NCAA basketball tournament is like. And the way that this really played out was just overall looking at the number of deals that these assets were part of. So we did you know, manipulate it a little bit from tournament style and just to get to our final result. But essentially, it was if an asset was involved in more sponsorship deals, then it moved on to the next round and to the next round. It's essentially a really creative horizontal layout of just a classic bar chart that we wanted to just add a little bit of flavor to. And so what does the results actually look like? What, what was the progression and, and the final result? Well, the final result told us that radio assets are most involved in sponsorship deals. They're included in over half of or almost half of them. And that really did stick out to me. Some of the other ones were fairly straightforward and things that we anticipated like website assets being involved and also LED because those are very friendly to both people that are at specific venues, whether it's basketball, softball, track and field, you can see the different signs that are going to be around the arena or the stadium. But also those are very camera friendly as well. So as the camera is panning across the court or the fields, these LED signs are going to be very prevalent throughout the entire broadcast. So some of those things that you just ran through, they, they stuck out as highlights for you. What about anything surprising that maybe you hadn't anticipated? The most surprising one to me was actually streaming. And streaming has been just such a hot topic across all forms of entertainment. We have the streaming wars between all of these different subscriptions. People are signed up to so many different packages and bundles like that, that it's, it is almost resembling cable in an interesting way. But streaming was not as involved in some of these sponsorship assets. One of the reasons that I was looking into just looking through past broadcast deals and sponsorship information like that on the digital end is that the broadcast of the NCAA tournament is a very lengthy, valuable contract that CBS has with the NCAA. Because of some of these lengthy broadcast deals, streaming just might not yet be as prevalent as it can in the future. But again, these are going to be complementary to each other. People that are watching on a broadcast might have a second screen open with a different stream going on at the same time. 
Great stuff, Jordan, and definitely a fun and cool exercise, but one that still gives us some really interesting takeaways as rights holders. They may be looking to get a handle on which sponsorship assets are right for their organisation and where they can capitalise on returns. Of course, listeners, as always, to read the blog, this time by Jordan, simply head along to the resources section at coresoftware.com. As I said earlier, this chat it clearly heavily relied on the visual elements from the blog, uh, the categorisation table and the head-to-head progression. So be sure to head to the website, check those out to get the full scope of what Jordan's just just run us all through. Jordan Rutner, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Throughout the world, we've seen tobacco sponsorship and alcohol sponsorship banned or curbed in most markets. And right now, the sponsorship industry is watching Britain after a House of Lords Select Committee on Gambling recommended that not only should gambling shirt sponsorship be banned by 2023, but there should also be no gambling advertising in or near any sports grounds or sports venues. Of course, the pervasiveness of betting in sport currently, and football in particular, is there for all to see and certainly a driving factor. Somebody right in the middle of it is Joel Seymour Hyde, MD at Octagon UK, who not only boasts Paddy Power as a client, but who has also served as a director on the European Sponsorship Association board. Here's Joel. Joel, welcome to the show. We always start with an icebreaker question or two just to get the show going and for the listeners to get to know you a little bit and understand you. You're now the fourth global Octagon team member to join the podcast behind Ben Hartman, Adam Hodge and Andrew Clark. And from memory, they're all big sports tragics as well. As such, your first icebreaker question, Joel, is who out of the four of you would win a sports trivia competition and why? I would describe that as quite an eclectic mix of uh, sports knowledge that you're going to have from that group. So I think it'd be very hard to just pick a winner because we probably have very specific areas of expertise. So maybe uh, as a real cop-out answer, I'd say it would make an excellent four ball on a quiz team, and we do very well, but I'm not sure who would actually win uh, one-on-one. It'd probably depend on the specific sports topic. Very good. Now, I do find it hard during COVID times because my wife is English. So there's a few Zoom meetings and trivia questions, and there's a lot that revolve around English popular culture that I have got zero idea about. So I, I get where you're coming from. Now, Joel, let's imagine for a moment the world is COVID free and life is as normal as it can be again. You've got two hours to yourself free. You can do whatever you want. What do you? What would you do with it? Very hard here not to give you a really cliched and probably English answer to this, but I really would take two hours in the pub with some good friends watching a very big you know, live sports match. Um, you know, some rugby or football would probably be the two ideal picks. You know, COVID's got that sort of funny ability to really, um, you know, demonstrate the things in life you took for granted before. Well, that were quite easy to do that you just now really, really miss. And so I know that's not the most ambitious answer, but it's something, you know, to be honest, yeah, haven't done for a year. So um, really looking forward to hopefully actually, you know, in the not too distant future, being able to do that again. And it will be, uh, yeah, very, very well uh, enjoyed. Definitely. Fingers crossed for you. Now, let's move to the serious stuff. The reason we have you on the show, I want to look at this topic a little bit conceptually before I ask where you sit personally on the topic. Why is sponsorship an effective and such an attractive marketing tool for gambling brands? And then why do you think sport represents the most used medium in the sponsorship space? One of the massive attractions for sport is reach. So it can reach a large number of eyeballs very quickly, which is obviously something that betting companies are very interested in. Second to that is the relevance. Now, clearly, as a betting brand, typically they will have books which generate the most revenue for them. And they're normally going to be, you know, things like football is probably number one, horse racing is probably number two. So obviously, it's going to make a lot of sense to have your brand relevant and placed around the key books that make you money as a business. So it just, that's obviously very logical. And then, you know, I think that the more interesting pieces that, that we certainly understand are there's, there's a lot about, you know, authenticity. So making sure that they, if they want to talk about being a great place to bet on sport, they can bring some context to that. And clearly investing in sports sponsorship allows them to do that, whether it's through content or just placement and association. And the other one that sometimes goes under the radar a little bit is about effectively credibility and reassurance that your money is safe. So if you are choosing 
who to bet with. And obviously, normally, one of the criteria you're going to pick is the sort of the odds you're going to get. If you don't recognize the brand who's offering you those odds, if you do start to build an association of them being on um, you know, a shirt of a football team or, or whatever it may be, then as a consumer, you're confident that if you place your money with that particular gambling company, uh, you'll get it back if you win is heightened. So there is, a, there is a sort of, you know, a reassurance that comes of seeing that brand living in the real world on, on a, um, you know, a piece of inventory, like a football shirt, and the consumer feeling, yeah, okay, I'll put my money here because I know they'll pay out if I, if I do win. So all of those reasons make it very attractive. And I think kind of also demonstrate why sport becomes the primary place versus say other you know entertainment or other areas it's just you know it's where the books are it's where the transactions are and it's where the eyeballs really are well talking about the brand awareness and the trust and the positioning is gambling sponsorship really just advertising and mostly just brand awareness like you said the market it's so saturated with gambling companies that I haven't even heard of some of them. I mean, I'm a Legion United fan, and I don't even know how to pronounce the gambling sponsor's name who is on our front of shirt. That's I'd never heard of them before they ended up on the front of our shirt. That's definitely a byproduct, I feel personally, of it not really feeling like a true sponsorship and that really does feel more like simple advertising and brand awareness and the kind of logo slapping that the industry's tried really hard to stop doing for some years now what's your thoughts on that i think there's probably two things to sort of pick apart in there i think the you know the piece around sort of obviously brands that you don't recognize on shirts and the you know arguably lack of activation you see from those brands is is explainable as almost another point from from your first question, which is again, you know, a lot of the brands who are jumping onto the football shirts are obviously international, and the audiences that they're going after aren't necessarily audiences in the UK. And the reason why, you know, again, just taking that specific example of the you know Premier League football shirt or you know more bigger club in a Championship shirt, the reason why they are attracted to those investments is for the you know the scale and reach that british football provides around the world particularly you know into into southeast asia so again if you're interested in eyeballs and an efficient way to reach a large tv based audience who will be betting real time on football matches then your brand on the shirt in the uk beamed to many markets around southeast asia is clearly very interesting to those brands hence why you see obviously Yes, uh, lots of brands you may not recognise as you know an Australian or or a British consumer. So it kind of you know kind of partly answers the first question as well about that kind of the international appeal of of sport and particularly Premier League football is one of the factors. In terms of you know the actual you know question of activation, I mean yeah, absolutely, it, it's obviously a very common critique of of sponsorship that sometimes you know isn't activated effectively or that you know the old model of slapping a logo is outdated and you know that's obviously everyone agrees with that and it's kind of an easy easy shot for for some commentators to take sometimes i think i'll probably talk about paddy power a few times in this conversation you know partly because i think they're a great example and mainly because i'm extremely biased because it's a campaign we worked on with them and 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 we're doing a number of other pieces of work with them at the moment I think it's very fair to say a lot of betting brands don't necessarily push boundaries when it comes to activation because of all the reasons you know I've already listed. They're getting their return from the investment through the awareness, the eyeballs, the authenticity, the relevance, and all these other pieces. You know, Paddy do approach it differently. And I think, you know, I would certainly argue, and I'd be interested to hear counter arguments of, it, of another betting brand, but I, I see them as the, you know, the most creative brand in the betting space, not just around sponsorship, but just more broadly around the creative work they do. And so, you know, there is not a big range of brands necessarily looking to do that as well, but Paddy will be an example where they will look at it differently. And, and when we were looking at the Save Our Shirt campaign, which is one that gets referenced quite a lot and has been very successful in in the category and actually outside the category I mean, it's won lots of awards across sponsorship the big insight behind that campaign was clutter so you know crazy volume of shirts that were sponsored by a betting brand you know over 50 percent in the premier league and championship 
And so the whole idea of Save Our Shirt was to almost parody that as only really Paddy could and sponsor a team and then take the brand off the shirt and give the shirt back to the fans, both as a great, obviously, you know, awareness driver for, for Paddy as a campaign, but also actually as a acknowledgement that the category has got a bit out of control both in not in, not just in terms of volume of, of sponsorship deals but lack of activation it's just a logo and so that's that was ex- extremely successful for paddy power and, and and for huddersfield actually in terms of that they had a record year of shirt sales off the back of it so it had loads of positive impacts but yeah paddy do to a degree stand alone in terms of that approach for activation which is you know partly driven by the brand and they have different objectives and they position themselves differently and can kind of afford to do that versus a lot of these other brands who are competing in the space for different reasons and looking for different benefits. You were recently quoted in the campaign publication discussing the impact on gambling brands being banned in sports sponsorship. And this is an interesting question, noting that you've had Paddy Power as a client. Where do you sit personally on this topic and, and why? I think it's inevitable in the end that it will happen. There's, the question is is really about how long will it take to happen in terms of legislation and political pressure and so on. I think fundamentally, the idea of removing the immediacy of betting brands from people watching sport who could be vulnerable to those messages, whether that be because they're young or because they are having you know, challenges with their own sort of behaviour around betting, I don't think you can really argue with. And I think we can understand the need for that. And we understand, you know, whether it's, you know, alcohol category, you know, sugary foods, cigarettes, you know, it's happened in lots of different categories over time. I think, you know, you have to respect effectively, you know, societal and cultural trends and how things move in certain directions around what is or isn't acceptable. In this specific case, I do have a think the sort of the focus is a little flawed, however. So, and, and it's a terrible pun, so excuse me, but, you know, football shirts are a very easy political football, effectively. Politicians to, to score points on legislation which they f- feel will be popular. And picking on a betting brand on a football shirt as the issue around you know, gambling advertising is is a little bit flawed and very narrow. So I think, you know, you, you could certainly argue that the pressure is being, if you can understand the logic, the pressure being sort of pincered onto the football shirt is unfair and not necessarily addressing the broader issue around advertising and regulation of the category. So, yeah, I think that's where I stand on it. Well, similar, as you said, to the tobacco industry, it experienced in the late 90s, early 2000s, that focus and and that ban on sponsorship and advertising. The gambling industry is now under scrutiny for not only its involvement in sponsorship, but its use of public-facing marketing efforts. Why do you think gambling sponsorship has avoided the spotlight until now? Because the concern, as you mentioned before, is the impact it has on vulnerable people, problem gamblers. But those issues have been known for years, but it's only been picked up as an issue now. Why has it taken so long? How has it avoided the spotlight? It comes back to that point a little bit around just sort of, you know, social and cultural trends more broadly in terms of how, you know, discussion around societal problems gets raised and, to be honest, becomes a topic of interest to politicians. Because I think you're, you're right. Obviously, there have been lobbyists and groups who would have had concern over, you know, I think probably the, the, the three at the moment which are in the spotlight are gambling, sugary foods and alcohol. And they've each had, you know, different regulations introduced. And again, I'm speaking here, you know, with a with a UK hat on. I'm, I'm sure I'm slightly ignorant to sort of, you know, probably what's going on in Australia. But we have had things here like the sugar tax is a big topic. So, you know, taxing anyone who's producing sugary foods. There's a lot of conversation here around obesity. So it normally comes back to a, you know, a societal issue, and then you go through to the, uh, the the sort of product, brand, and advertising issue. So if obesity is an issue, then eventually it's going to lead back to, well, who creates sugary foods? What can we do to target them? And I think with gambling, 
it, it, the reason has probably been there have just been other things that have been bigger societal issues that, you know, politics and society is focused on discussing, and it's kind of had its place in the queue almost. Um, you know, I think, again, I'm conscious, obviously, you know, coming on to talk about this topic, it can look quite sort of cynical or, or very commercial, but, you know, in the end, um, made a decision obviously many years ago to work in the advertising industry. And if you work in the advertising industry, you have to accept that obviously some of the brands and products you work with will be in areas of society that have, you know, questions asked about them. So, you know, and that's not specific to gambling. It's you, you can almost, I guess, park your sort of moral compass wherever you like on that, on that scale. And I think, you know, typically one of the one of the more mature approaches to take to it is to trust government policy as your barometer of sort of what's you know what's okay to be working on or not and as i say i think it's just now becoming something that's getting more conversation and you know a lot of the gambling companies are doing lots more to address it so you'll certainly see now if you watch any live sport there's normally quite a lot of advertising around tapping out I think is the is the current campaign encouraging people to tap out encouraging people to gamble responsibly and you know so there's there's, there's lots of efforts going on onto it but yeah it's um clearly that the specific topic of problem gamblers has been around for a while but it just it is now just one of the key areas that is getting a bit of focus it's an interesting point speaking about a moral compass and what the government legislation is at the time when you're doing that work because gambling companies are, at the end of the day, they're just another business and it must be pointed out that they are a legal business. They're not offering anything that's illegal. Do you think it's fair for governments then at this point in time when they're not illegal businesses to go after banning gambling sponsorships and play sports under even more pressure when we're in such uncertain economic times? Is it fair, do you think? Is it fair on whom? So you, you could argue in a way that this type of legislation in the end would hurt rights holders more than gambling companies. So... I think, you know, we'll come to that in a second. The the sort of analysis in terms of the pressure puts on gambling companies, I think, you know, gambling companies make a lot of money at the moment in most cases. So, um, and they're pretty adaptable. So, uh, you know, again, even speaking of, with, with Paddy as a client, I'm certainly not trying to be unsympathetic to them, but equally, you know, they, they do have the ability to adapt and, and, and their business model is not being threatened here. It's just about places where they should place their brand. I think the the question of, is this unfairly harsh on rights holders, particularly, you know, for example, I guess, smaller football clubs and smaller, and again, with all due respect, smaller sports, just in terms of like eyeballs and volume of fans and commercial revenues, such as maybe, you know, snooker and darts and, and horse racing who do rely on gambling investments, hitting their revenue streams at a time where their revenue streams have already been hit hard. Yes, that does feel insensitive. But again, you know, it comes back to it's political at the moment. It's it's a sort of it's a good political point scorer to target this area. So unfortunately, it's going to be an area of conversation, and it probably will push in a certain direction because I think you're going to have you're going to find it hard pressed to find enough MPs who will come out and say we you know reject this type of motion just because of the sensitivity of the topic. So I think this comes back to the point that. In my mind, it's as I say, the the target is too narrow, and a target is a little bit unfair, and it's not really addressing the core problem. So, going after you know Burnley because they have a betting brand on their shirt and hitting their revenue in a year where they've you know had revenue hits already, or even you know going into the championship. Obviously, there are a number of clubs with betting brands too, and targeting the shirt does feel unfair when there's a lot of you know gambling money that still will be spent but won't go to the clubs so you know the best example is you can ban a club from having a brand on their shirt but it'll be fine for bet365 to have all the pre-roll inventory around your you know ott platform where you then watch the game and you could you know you could make the argument that that pre-roll inventory is actually more impactful to a user than the shirt so it does beg the question you know are, are they going after the right issue in the topic or, or the right point in the around the issue 
or are they targeting the football shirt? Because, again, to my earlier point, it's a very easy and demonstrable win to take because if you can... Because it is quite an obvious thing. You know, you see it on the shirt. It's kind of emotive. So if politicians can turn around and say, oh, look, we've removed that from the shirt. Aren't we wonderful? We've solved a you know a problem. Thank you very much. It is very narrow because there will be lots of gambling spend. It still goes around the other inventory around football. So it doesn't really solve the problem if there's a problem to discuss and does have an unfair impact on, on you know, probably some rights holders who have less revenue. So your big clubs, your Man U's and Chelsea's and Tottenham's, you know, the ones who demand the 30, 40, 50 million pound a year shirt deals don't have betting brands on those shirts anyway. So they're okay. But I think a lot of it comes from the perception that this is going after two groups that make a lot of money, you know? So from the betting point of view, I mean, again, sometimes they don't necessarily help themselves. So uh, I'm not sure if you saw on the newswires here, but um, there's a lady called Denise Coates, who is the uh, chief exec of Bet365, and uh, she paid herself £421 million last year. So, you know, she did, well, last, this is her sort of annual payout. So in that context, asking for much sympathy for the category is very challenging. And then it's the same, it's the same with football clubs. Like there is a perception, obviously, the sort of, I guess, the, the mainstream media perception of football being very, very, very wealthy whether that's the clubs or the players. And so you often find it's very hard to elicit sympathy for the plight of a football club's commercial revenue if you cut off something like gambling sponsorship because, you know, there's obviously lots of other sports and governing bodies and areas who could plead significantly more poverty. But that doesn't obviously take into account, as I said, the smaller clubs who genuinely do live, you know, sort of hand-to-mouth month to month and do have genuine issues so yeah it's obviously you know there's lots of layers to this but you know i think the key piece is being there are lots of big you know organizations that do make a lot of money when you combine that with an easy target for politicians you, you can see how we've got to this sort of place and why sympathy for commercial pressure will not be massively forthcoming and to be honest the normal answer the normal response to that if a small club complains they're not going to have enough revenue, the normal response is, well, just you know, get the Premier League to fund you more, and that, you know, and and that it's a, a kind of lack of sympathy to the actual mechanics of how football works, and I think that's what drives a lot of it. Well, it would be naive of gambling sponsors themselves, the companies, the bookies, to think that this conversation would never happen sometime in the future, whether it was now or or maybe in the years to come, and ultimately start planning for a ban or at least restrictions on gambling sponsorships. Are you able to tell us generally, without throwing anybody under the bus, what the gambling companies have been talking about internally or, or maybe with each other and also their mood around this whole topic? How are they feeling about not sharing anything too confidential, but when we were thinking about the Save the Shirt campaign, part of the conversation was that a ban at some point in the future is inevitable. So from Paddy Power's point of view, to effectively be the brand that sponsors a shirt, parodies the category, removes their brand from the shirt, gives it back to the fans, all ahead of a ban two years later anyway, is a pretty smart move and does allow, you know, Paddy to claim, and, it, and it's true because we did claim the position that we drove the conversation around there being too many betting brands on shirts and that that should not be the case. So you can argue there you've actually got one of the leaders in the category, not only preparing for it, but actually helping to instigate the conversation around it. And with the ultimate result that all betting brands are removed from the shirt. So then that obviously begs the question, well, why on earth would they drive their own category away from the ability to sponsor an asset? So what's interesting there is obviously the Huddersfield deal and then the subsequent deals with you know other teams like Motherwell and so on. It was the first time really that Paddy has sort of got involved in shirt sponsorships at scale. And then you know done smaller things, but certainly at scale. And 
So it wasn't strategically an area they'd got into. And then if you look at some of the other bigger UK betting brands, Labrooks, William Hill, it's not really an area they've uh, invested. And so if you look at the profile of the brands that tend to buy these shares, as I said, they are they tend to be the overseas brands who aren't really actually going after the UK consumers, even though they're on a UK shirt and are beaming eyeballs back to other markets. But obviously, by doing that, they do clearly pick up some, you know, market interest and, and market share in the UK. So for your, I guess, what you would call, you know, traditional or certainly established betting brands in the UK, it's actually not the worst thing in the world that that piece of inventory is unavailable because it reduces some of the entry points for overseas brands to come in and potentially eat share. So it's one of those ones where they, you know they've kind of seen it coming and actually I'm not sure if they'd say it publicly but probably aren't too upset about it because it actually is a little bit protectionist for them and you know they already have the market share and they're competing for that and obviously growing and producing new products and offering new books and services and you know you, consumer experiences in terms of apps and access and all these other things that are really important to their maintain maintaining market share but actually what they don't want is new companies coming in from overseas with deep pockets, you know, buying acquisition of, of new consumers. So, yeah, it kind of works in their favor, really, which is why you probably won't see a lobby against it. Very interesting. I hadn't thought of that angle at all. Very interesting. Now, let's talk about the rights holders. Seeing that only eight at the moment, so that's 40% of Premier League teams have a gambling sponsor as their front of shirt sponsor. Is it really all doomsday financially, like some people would argue when they're they're beating the drum, so to speak, when they will be forced to find a non-gambling front of shirt sponsor, i.e., how hard do you think it will be for them to actually replace that revenue, at least in the same ballpark in the short term? I did do some maths on this, which obviously now I don't can't find to hand, but I'm just going to try and remember it from my head. I mean, I think there's a very short term thing, and there's a there's a sort of mid to long term, and there's two two parts to the answer. So obviously, on a very very simple basis, take an example of someone like I used Burnley before, so you know we can use them again. You know, they're getting decent money from their Fun88, I think was their most recent betting partner. It might have actually changed, but, you know, that type of deal. And say they're getting $5 million per annum from a betting partner. In the short term, would they be able to go to the market and necessarily from a non-betting category, because they often rotate, you know, betting brands in those sort of deals, would they be able to go and get five million from a different category straight away for July the first, twenty twenty one, for next season? Possibly not. I, th- I think it's reasonable to assume at least a twenty percent hit on on for those type of rights holders purely on the value of a shirt because you would be removing your most competitive category. So you, you say twenty percent hit from that. I, I don't think is unreasonable to to assume. However, having said that. With the rules that came in only outlawed this front of shirt and not betting sponsorship per se, then one of the consequences will be that they could, you know, these betting brands can have secondary partners with the clubs. So you would find that actually the clubs might upweight some of their secondary partnership deals because, you know, rather than having the betting brand on the shirt, they now have a secondary level betting partner who buys access to other inventory. So LED, backdrops, digital assets, CRM access, so on and so forth. And so actually their secondary partnership re- re- revenue goes up. So then you might only be down by 500k for sake of argument if that. So the overall commercial impact potentially won't actually be that high when you think about it in that way. And I should just to be correct to the partnership Love Bet were the uh, the most recent Burnley partner rather than it was Fun 8 before that. So but again in a way, that almost proves the point, right? So you had Fun88, they drop out, Lovebet come in, sign a new deal. I think that was up to actually 7.5 million per annum. So it's a good deal. So I think the chances of Lovebet necessarily, a non-betting category being being able to spend that sort of own revenue on a Burnley sponsorship, I think is probably unlikely. So even if they went down to, say, 5 million per annum from a new sponsor in a new category, to the 2.5 deficit, they'd make some of that back up 
probably by having a, a secondary partner as a, as a betting brand instead, which didn't happen before. And, you know, then in the medium to long term, as other categories emerge and the market corrects, you would flatten out that, that revenue loss over time. So I don't think it's, it's certainly not catastrophic for sure. It's a, you know, if you're a head of commercial for, as you know, those sort of, sort of, I guess, bottom half of the Premier League, top half of the championship team, of course, it's, you know, it's not ideal because, you know, you're, you're targeted and bonused and on maximizing commercial revenues. And, and for the first season that there is a ban in place, there will be a hit, but it's probably not a long-term hit, and it's definitely not something that should necessarily cause massive problems for clubs. Well, that answer definitely changes what I was kind of guessing your next answer would be, because I was going to ask, let's say you're the head of sponsorship at a Premier League team, a big club, and you currently have a gambling company as your front-of-shirt sponsor. You know a ban is coming, and the contract won't be renewed in pretty much the same form as it is now. What industries do you have your eye on to fill the space and why are they attractive to a Premier League club? Try not to be too obvious because there's obviously a few categories that have emerged recently that everyone talks about. The, the newest two, I guess, entrants have been food delivery and uh, the online car marketplace. So effectively, both of them are in the world of, you know, digital disruptors of traditional physical services, you know, so, you know, food deliveries existed for a long time, but Deliveroo, Just Eat, DoorDash, Uber Eats, you know, have all come onto the scene in the last five years. And in the last two years in particular, have invested a lot in sponsorship. So, you know, Deliveroo have done deals, you know, in the UK, the England team, in France, at PSG, just Eat had a derby deal. They've just announced I mean, a much bigger deal. So they've gone heavily invested into European football. So they are a, a Euro 2020 sponsor. They're also just been announced as a Champions League sponsor, also a Europa League sponsor, and a big, invest, a big investor in women's football as well across those Europe, UEFA properties. So Women's Champions League, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, very impressive sort of inventory. So that deal, or that category has been vibrant for quite some time. And I'm pretty sure if you spoke to a brand manager at any one of those companies, they would say they've been contacted by every football club going. The other one that's emerged is, the, I said, the online car market. So over here, that's Kazoo and Cinch in particular are the big two players. And Kazoo have sponsored Everton's front of shirt, Aston Villa's front of shirt, Cinch are on the sleeve of Tottenham. They've both done deals in other sports. I think Cinch has partnered with the ECB. I think Kazoo has partnered with the 100. So it's, you know, kind of, again, super competitive. And the 100 is our, is our new shiny version of the Big Bash, as I'm sure you're aware. So the ECB, to use a very uh, English phrase, having invented the format of 2020, have then very enviously seen it improved by both the Big Bash and the IPL and obviously one of the piece of a new sort of attractive short form version of cricket. So um, we've now got the 100, which I'm sure you're aware of is our sort of 100 ball format, which is launched, was supposed to launch um, last summer, but is now launching this summer and it's you know, getting quite a lot of attention. And I think it'd be really interesting actually to see how it, um, how it plays out. But that's going slightly off piece. So, but again, you know, good examples. So I think looking at other digital disruptors, you know, online housing market or online fashion. I think maybe the online fashion market could potentially go more towards, you know, music and entertainment, but it's interesting. There's people like Boohoo, uh, probably the big ones over here, online energy providers. You know, there's lots of disruption in this sort of digitizing traditional services space. And a lot of these brands do tend to go towards sponsorship as a great way to, to grow quickly. Just obviously in the last week, TeamViewer, who I think everyone's you know very amused by in the sense of hadn't ever heard of them, and now they sponsor Manchester United and the Mercedes F1 team, so they've now become one of the big sponsors globally. So you could argue the sponsorship's kind of already done its job because now everyone's talking about them, and then they weren't a week ago. They've gone in very heavily. Again, that's the same sort of theory, really. That's a business that's obviously done extremely well out of lockdown because they're in the you know mobile 
video conferencing and communication space. So, you know, having an eye on all those categories will do you well, for sure. And then I think, you know, you just start to think, where could new players emerge? I mean, Bitcoin, for example, if that becomes more mainstream, you could think that one of the big barriers to using Bitcoin will be trust. And a worry that if I put my money into Bitcoin, will I ever get it back? It would be a very common barrier to entry, you can imagine, for that category. So again, sponsorship could actually be a really interesting area for them because it does have that brilliant benefit of giving you something physical to sponsor, which kind of reassures consumers you exist. And I've actually heard the online re car retail guys talk about that being, you know, one of the big benefits of sponsorship is it gives you bricks and mortar. So if you're a digital business and doesn't really have any touch points in the real world, a sponsorship gives you that. It gives you assets and tickets and stadiums and things to touch and feel that you don't really otherwise have as a brand. So I think, you know, that whole area and emergence across numerous categories is probably where you're going to sort of go to try and um, fill those spaces. I liked what you said earlier about there maybe not being a bigger hit as we might think by just having a major sh a front of shirt sponsor ripped away. And we've kind of touched on changes in terms of the rights available and secondary partnership updates and, and bookmakers just being creative about trying to access and get their message out to a market. So I'm curious about whether banning gambling on front of shirt will really actually have that much effect. If the market is so attractive, wouldn't gambling companies simply divert that budget into other areas, whether that's with rights holders or or maybe other channels? I mean, the marketing industry, we know, is very good at coming up with innovative and creative ways to reach their target audiences. So the redirect of funds could actually result in gambling companies, if they get really creative and find ways, actually help them become better at reaching the target markets that they want to, which might actually have the, the counter effect, won't it? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, to that point about, you know, secondary partnerships. So, you know, that's a very straightforward way to to divert funds from the front of share into other areas. So again, if you're if you're a gambling company who's looking for international awareness and association with football, if you can't have the front of shirt, the next best asset you could look for would you know well stadium naming rights would be one but the other would be led because it's kind of in game it's live it's you know it's kind of gives direct association it's very clearly targeted and again you could see significant i mean not that they don't do this already but you know guaranteed led inventory via secondary partnerships clearly is, is one obvious route i mentioned at the beginning you know i watch uh you know, when I'm hiding from the kids in the loft and I'm watching uh, football on my on my phone on the Sky Go app, you know, all the pre-rolls are um, sponsored by Bet365 for most of the football content. So again, you know, spending more money around just you know general advertising, but online advertising, digital content, associative media linked to football is obviously exactly where um, where money will go. So I think part of the question is. You know, and again, this is actually, again, without going too off-piste, uh, it reminds me of, you know, companies like Dugout and what they're trying to provide to clubs is trying to keep the money in the football ecosystem. So one of the big frustrations for clubs, and one of the things that, you know, Dugout was effectively, you know, created to solve was that brands would sponsor football clubs, but then when it came to activation would then go and spend millions of dollars with Facebook and Twitter and Google and YouTube around football to advertise and promote their partnerships and you know drive content and eyeballs. And that's money effectively going out of the family. So, you know, products like Dugout, what they're there to do is try and say, well, actually, look, we can give you consolidated eyeballs and it keeps the money because Dugout is owned by the, the clubs keeps the money in the in in the football universe rather than giving it to Mr Zuckerberg or or whoever it may be and so i think the interesting question is you know gambling companies you know 
they know how to spend to drive returns and drive eyeballs, and they have sophisticated, you know, obviously media agencies and others to help them do that. So probably there's not really a question of will gambling companies be able to spend this money reaching football fans, unless the uh, ban is incredibly draconian and goes way further than football shirts. Of course they will. But then the issue is actually that money is not going to football and then is not reinvested in football. It's going to media companies and publishers outside of the game. So, Joel, I want to pick up on that point about keeping the money in the football ecosystem. You spoke about when you're hiding from the kids in the loft and watching football on your phone that all the pre-roll is is all bet 365. So if we shift the focus a little to, to global with OTT helping sports penetrate non-domestic markets, does banning gambling sponsorship actually hurt the football industry in the UK in terms of being able to compete and ultimately overall hurt the UK economy? Because when I was doing some research, I noted that the Premier League alone contributes £7.6 billion to the UK's GDP and 12,000 people are directly employed by Premier League clubs. That doesn't include all the other divisions. What's your take on the UK pulling back on gambling sponsorships whilst teams in other markets and leagues in the US, they're just signing gambling sponsorship deals all over the place? Yeah, it's funny how uh, yeah cycles work. Like The US has been you know, this kind of, I guess, dark market for, for gambling brands for so long, and it's suddenly opened up just as others are... Closing, but I mean, I mean, but again, the U.S. has always had a strange relationship with gambling. Anyway, you know, sort of the state by state rules around it have been always a bit confusing. I think probably this is one is difficult to provide a sort of sensationalist answer. So I think the the answer is probably a bit boring, which is probably not because even if you take sponsorship as a category, it's actually still quite a small piece of the revenue pie when it comes to how clubs and the football ecosystem makes its money. You know, in the end, the biggest source of revenue by far is TV broadcast. So whether that's the Premier League or the FA or any other sort of sports rights holder, that's what you know effectively make or breaks your um, your commercial revenues. So you know, in terms of threats to like kind of the the industry, a bigger threat would be actually a sort of and there's obviously lots of discussion about this at the moment. So the Premier League is just on the cusp of, um, you know, it's it's domestic tender for rights. And so the risk is that if BT and Sky turn around and say, yeah, you know what, we're not going to kind of kill each other anymore, trying to outbid each other for packages. We're going to kind of agree to a detente and, you know, both go in lower. And the Premier League sort of hopes that, you know, Amazon or Google or Facebook are going to come in with a massive deal to offset that. I think that's where there's a potential issue because, you know, those, the fangs or whatever you want to call them, haven't quite, they've, they've invested in, in in sports rights now, but not necessarily at the mass scale that, you know, I think people may be expected. So I think there is a risk that, you know, the kind of, the broadcast market kind of flattens out a bit and that would have a much more significant impact on, you know, the, the trickle down in terms of revenue, then sponsorship would, you know, sponsorship is a general category. So if you then take, if you imagine like broadcast is 60, 70% of all the revenue, and then you've got commercial and match day as the other pieces, when we're then looking at only a small proportion of the sponsorship revenue itself being at risk, the scale of it doesn't quite add up. So it won't, it wouldn't cause a material issue, I don't think. If there was a broader gambling conversation around gambling advertising, clearly that would have a much bigger knock-on impact in terms of revenues because then you start to talk about advertising budgets in general, it's getting it's getting much bigger. But yeah, I don't think um at the current state it would be something that you know is too big of an issue. So to give you a good example, the FA had a deal with both William Hill and then Labrooks for a number of years. And in the end the FA decided, you know, proactively ahead of market forces to end having a gambling brand sponsor them, which was a very logical thing to do because obviously with the FA, one of the things they also have to manage is, you know, policies around players gambling. And it was becoming very difficult to, you know, penalise a player 
for um, a gambling indiscretion at the same time as taking money from a, a gambling sponsor. So they so they moved away from that. But you know, around a similar time, signed a very big deal for the international TV rights for the FA Cup, which effectively secured their revenue safety for you know the following six years. So that just, I guess, gives you a sense of you know what's going to make or break you know the kind of revenue for for those sort of rights holders. Having said that, obviously, then Corona hit and everyone's revenues got sort of impacted in different ways. And the FA's obviously had a tough time with you know no games at Wembley, which is a big hit, but that's totally separate to to this sort of stuff. So yeah, no, I think overall it wouldn't be too detrimental. Let's switch back to the rights holder perspective with your head of sponsorship hat back on. Rights holders, they're already under immense pressure to continue bringing year-on-year revenue increases. How hard, when, and, and how do you start planning for these revenues to to start dropping? And admittedly, not dropping as much as I might thought that you have said earlier when you spoke about how they might shift things around. But when does the planning and how much planning and when do you push go on, on really trying to move forward and, and away from gambling brands, considering the impending ban that's coming? Almost all of these sort of contracts run in that sort of annual cycle from July to June or August to July is broadly, you know, in that cycle to align to the football seasons or, you know, to be honest, same for rugby, same for a lot of sports seasons. They kind of run on that cycle. In a way, it depends on what type of deals you're doing at the moment. Now, obviously, you know, when you talk about industry best practice, the general consensus is normally kind of three-year deals are the, are the, you know, the perfect model where, the rights holder gets uh, three years of revenue and cash flow, which is great. The brand gets an investment over a long enough period of time to actually, you know, develop plans, learn, test, evolve, and and sort of over a three-year period kind of perfect their activation and campaign work around the sponsorship, and everyone's kind of happy. What you tend to find again in in this particular category around the shirt is there's quite a big discrepancy between deal length depending on size of club and type of deal. So again, you know, United just announced a team viewer. Again, I'm I'm have to my, my Google knowledge is not working brilliant today. I, I think it's a five year deal, but certainly Chevrolet before was a five year deal. And you know, normally at the very least, those big investments are kind of at least three year deals. But as you go down down into sort of again the lower end of the Premier League and into the championship, you do see more annual deals. And obviously, if you're in an annual deal cycle model, you're effectively always selling. So the deals signed in July, you might give yourself a summer holiday, but then to be honest, you come back in September and you will be in the market thinking about new partners, both to come on board in general as like secondary partners of the club, but even thinking about potential shirt sponsors for the following season, because it's just, you know, it's good practice to always be in the market, always be having conversations. You never know when they'll sort of evolve quickly. You've got to build that sort of pipeline of, of conversation and potential new partners. And um, yeah, and, you, and you've kind of lived a little bit hand to mouth year to year with particularly the betting category where some of these brands do come in, big check, disappear, new one comes in, so on and so forth. So I guess, you know, the answer really is that it probably hasn't massively changed sales strategy because there is this need to always be in the market but what it would have done is probably put a little bit more pressure on both the creative thinking but also the focus on other categories so as i talked about you know you list all those digital disruptors you know what's our strategy to go after them you know what's our story it's relevant to them why are we different to another club and i think from a sales point of view one of the um Big challenges clubs often have with their sales approach is creating that uniqueness in their story. So, you know, spend, and in a way, they've got away with that in the betting category because a lot of these brands, if you're being really honest, and again, in no means meaning to disrespect sort of, you know, the the pitch or approach of any club, but a lot of these betting brands, I think you'd be hard pressed to say they have genuinely picked a certain club because of brand fit and the brand narrative story. Whereas when you move into other categories, that is going to become more important. 
and having a really clear sense of what you're about and why that's relevant to these brands you're going after and how you can differentiate to make sure that it isn't just a sort of, you know, a, a commodity-based decision and, you know, a brand's kind of lining up five clubs and going, oh, well, you know, as long as one of them's less than five million, we'll go for that one. It's going to be really important. So there will be some, for sure, you know, I think it's a chance in a way to, you know, both think more creatively about categories, but also think more creatively about how you talk about yourself. And that's probably the, the interesting challenge you'll bring. I don't usually like asking the tired, cliched, crystal ball question, but it kind of feels pretty apt here, especially considering the real and big change that is coming and also potentially as other markets watch and learn from what's happening in the UK and what will happen in the UK. What does gambling's involvement in sports sponsorship look like in around, say, 10 to 15 years' time? Do you see it mostly how you outlined earlier with increases and changes as secondary sponsors, or do you see something completely different? Ultimately, it's going to be linked more broadly to advertising, I think, is the answer to that. So I think certainly from a sponsorship point of view, there's no question that you won't see gambling brands probably having their logo to be honest, really present in most places in 10 to 15 years' time. I can't, I can't, I think, you know, shirts obviously go first. You could probably argue that, you know, things like even secondary partnership sponsorships would also, you know, be frowned upon. Same possibly for alcohol, I think, and sugary snacks. I think those three in 10 to 15 years' time, I think could easily be, you know, looked back on a little bit like we look back on people smoking in pubs, right? You kind of think, did that really happen? And uh could be a little bit like that. But I think their ability to still be, you know, part of the conversation and noise around live sport, I think pro- probably will still be there to some degree. So, you know, because I do think there will still be degrees of advertising allowed. And this comes back to like sort of, freedom of choice and and decision about, you know, what you see. So I think probably a most likely scenario is that you there would be no obvious brand in-game, as you'd call it. So you wouldn't see them on the LED or on the shirts or on the kind of, you know, interview backdrops or maybe even in the naming rights of a stadium. And you wouldn't see them in advertising before the watershed or whatever version of the watershed exists at that point. But I do think if there were abilities to you know and again who knows how quick technology is going to move but you know filtering technology and your viewer experience to clearly be either an adult audience or time of day which is agreed to be post watershed i think it's almost like an old-fashioned term now isn't it to talk about but there'll be certain environments where i think probably the advertising can still exist around football and and support football and create and around all sport i should say sorry but yeah it'll be a bit harder to find and i think if you and this is, you know, if you're honest, you know, as a parent, it is probably a good thing. If you were looking at the football or sport through a child's eyes, you just you wouldn't really be exposed to those messages or brands. Joel, super interesting chat. If the listeners want to connect with you and keep the conversation going, maybe find out more about Octagon's work, what can they do? Where can they go? We're pretty active on the obvious social channels. So Octagon UK on Twitter, Octagon UK on Instagram, and actually on LinkedIn, all three of those, we, we have profiles and we do, yeah, we try and keep the, you know, the work and the people stuff on Instagram, sort of news about the business on Twitter and, and obviously, again, more business sort of content focus on LinkedIn. So we're on all of those and definitely try to interact and, and say hello. So, yeah, for sure, if there's any, um, any interactions, you can head there and, I'm on Twitter and Insta and LinkedIn as well, so easy enough to find the, my surname. So, Well, on that point, that's a great segue to the start of my close, which says Joel Seymour Hyde, MD Octagon UK. Thank you so much for taking us inside gambling sponsorship in the UK right now. Pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. 
a truly fascinating chat, and I'm sure many markets around the world will be watching with keen interest, including gambling companies who are already probably working on ways to ensure they maintain awareness and engagement with their target markets. Maybe even as well some other social areas of concern such as sugary snacks and drinks will also be watching with interest as it's easy to see the focus shift to them in the near future. So thanks again to Joel for joining us and taking us inside the impending gambling sponsorship ban in Britain and how the stakeholders are positioning themselves behind the scenes. I certainly found some interesting nuggets and angles to look at the situation from and things I hadn't considered so I trust you did as well. You can connect with Joel on LinkedIn. Just search for Joel Seymour Hyde. That's S-E-Y-M-O-U-R hyphen H-Y-D-E or visit octagon.com to see some of their amazing client work or simply head to coresoftware.com click on the resources in the menu and then on the podcast link and you'll find links to Joel and Octagon in the show notes for this episode. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And of course, if you want to connect with Jordan Rutner, Research Marketing Manager at Core Software, you can catch him on jordan.rutner at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. That's Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, Rutner, R-U-T-N-E-R. That's a wrap for episode 95. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship listening to the show for more episodes and to subscribe to the show search for inside sponsorship on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcast also for more free industry specific resources including blogs ebooks white papers and our insights newsletter head to coresoftware.com finally be sure to follow core software on twitter and linkedin 